0: This episode of the David McWilliams podcast is brought to you by Liberty Insurance.
1: Liberty Insurance is changing the way you buy insurance by offering you a personalised insurance, no longer limited to package A or B. With Liberty, you can tailor a package for yourself that includes everything you want and need and none of the stuff that you don't.
0: Yeah, it's like an a la carte rather than a a set menu. I'm kind of into this stuff. And from what I'm told, you can actually save up to... 300 euros
1: when you buy online. So that's what I hear as well. So if this sounds like something you're interested in, you can get a quote today at libertyinsurance.ie or search Liberty Car Insurance. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
0: This podcast is powered by Acast.
1: How are you doing there? It is podcast time. In fact, this is an extra bonus podcast for you. I hope you enjoy it. The whole idea, of course, is that we are making economics that little bit more comprehensible, credible, relevant, and hopefully you can deploy it in all sorts of ways. John, how are you? What's the crack? I'm good, but I'm seeing you through the screen,
0: sweating your bags off in Croatia. Well, listen, man.
1: Speaking of sweating your bags off, I believe you have dropped ten kilos in two months. Now this let's is, not go there, man. Let's this not is quite. This is we're going. To, we're, this entire podcast is going to be personalised marketing, <laughs> behavioural economics, nudging. Ten kilos, so you'd be disappearing, man. Would you stop?
0: Yeah, <laughs> I've given up the booze. Uh, well, not quite. Not quite. No, that's 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 going too far. I've given up the booze. A little giving bit, up the booze and in the womb
1: stands like Jerry Rafferty on Baker Street. Do you remember that like that great line? So go on, tell me so giving up bread and gargle.
0: Bread and gargle. But no, it's the boxing. It's it's all down to the boxing with, with Neil Bowman. It's great. It's going great. But but John, ten kilos. Like you'll be like a whippet before you know it. Well, put it this way, I had that and plenty more to give, let me tell you.
1: Right. So that was what what about two percent of your body weight was it? <laughs> Well, listen, I've, I'm telling you now, I tell you now, the, the the John Davis slimming course, he is, what's that English fella who's always on the telly, the really good looking lad who's always doing the diets, uh, what's his name? I wouldn't know, Mac. Uh, no, I tell you, what's his name? Some English young fella. And he's always, it's, that'll be you, that'll be you. It's there's yeah. another lockdown now, you're going to have your own podcast and your own sort of YouTube channel.
0: That's it, yeah, that's the plan.
1: For Flabby lads. You, you, get get, sh- you should get bored, huh? I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm feeling like it, I'm feeling like it. Anyway, John. You know what I was thinking of last night for this podcast, right? Go on. I was sitting here in Croatia, minding my own business, and on my phone, I got a Spotify playlist orchestrated by Spotify, Right. And right. I had no idea. You've no idea that somebody's listening to what you're listening to. This is the weird thing. Some sort of algorithm is going on in the backdrop, yeah, yeah, knowing what you're listening. So I just got this. I mean, it won't be up your street, I know, but it's an R and B playlist. It's Mary J. Blige, Lauren Hill, George Smith, Nice, her, Yeah, yeah Angie Stone, The Silhouettes, Frank Ocean, Passion Fruit by Drake, Frank Roses. Ocean or Billy Ocean? Frank Ocean. Frank Ocean. Bittersweet, Leanne, to De Havas. It's really good. Anderson Pack. All these sort of things. But you know what's really fascinating, John, is the way in which you and I don't know, or I don't know, so maybe it's our age, that everything we do is being listened to. Yes. Everything we do is being noted. And every little piece of information that we make available online is being collated by some sort of algorithm throwing back at us this sort of personalized marketing stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's a phenomenally powerful. It's the George Orwell,
0: 1984, Big Brother kind of vibe from a cynical perspective is a bit scary.
1: Well, I, the interesting thing is you're absolutely right because if you remember the very opening paragraph, the very opening lines of 1984, Winston Smith, 49, has an ankle problem. He's yeah. going up the stairs of his apartment block and it's grey and it smells of, Orwell said, cabbage. Boiled cabbage. Uh, uh, and at every return in the, in the apartment block is this extraordinary TV screen with a middle aged man with a shock of black hair and a heavy mustache, Big Brother, modeled, of course, on Joseph Stalin. So yeah. you're absolutely, and it's the Big Brother's watching you. And the idea there is Big Brother was watching you to extract information about your behavior. Now, what we're doing is we're giving the information willingly. Big Brother, and they're then selling the shit back to us, which is kind of mad. I mean, Orwell was miles ahead of the whole thing, but it is absolutely fascinating because it gets to the core of a type of economics, a brand of economics that we haven't spoken about for a while, behavioral economics. Yeah, How we behave, how... That combination of psychology and economics is pushing us into various decisions. I was also reading over the last couple of days, my old mate and a a friend of the show, Dan Ariely's fantastic work. I mean, Dan has got extraordinary work, but on the issue of nudging, John, and Mm. nudging is this idea of just pushing us ever so slightly in certain decisions to change our behavior. Now, amazingly, the Department of Finance in the UK, the Treasury, set up an institute of nudging under David Cameron, to try and change British public behavior. The Nobel Prize that was run by Richard Taylor not that long ago for economics was largely centered on his work in a book called Nudge, How to Change Behavior. Right. And as I was, as I was reading down stuff and then Spotify gave me this playlist, I realized that all the time we are being nudged. And of course, that behavioral economics is all about these little mistakes we make the little shortcuts we take, they call heuristics, to try and make the world simpler. And ultimately, ultimately, it kind of gets inside our heads on how we actually behave. And you know, the way economics always starts with the idea that man is rational, as we spoke about even last yes. week. Yeah. So behavioral yeah. economics is, oh, hold on a second, we are not rational. But as Dan Ariely said in his book, the title of which was Predictably Irrational, he said, our irrationality. Can actually be predicted, as long as they know, as we know enough data about us.
0: Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask you. So, how do they nudge you in the right way? Well, like, how does this whole nudging thing work?
1: Well, actually, very recently, I had to renew my annual subscription to the Atlantic magazine, John, which right. is an American mag which I like a lot. Yeah, okay? it's good. And yeah. it's it's very very good, and it's kind of reasonably highbrow, but sort of middlebrow as well. And it's got very, very good articles. And the one thing we know about America is when they are good, they're absolutely brilliant at everything. So that's why they have the top 10 universities in the world. All the Nobel Prize winners are there. That basically when America is very good in anything it does, it's absolutely brilliant. But on average, America is woeful at most things, right? So it's got this really weird sort of Bizarre, what you would call bell curve. These very, very long tails. When they're brilliant, they're really, really brilliant. Yeah. And journalism is the same thing. And the Atlantic is one of those great, great journalistic endeavours. And I suspect, John, the reason it is is they probably pay the journalists pretty well, so that they're getting very, very top quality journalists. And those top quality journalists are writing very, very high level stuff. But right. the interesting thing was, they gave me three options for renewal, right? And this is what they call the decoy effect. In behavioral economics, right? The first option was online only. Yeah. The second one was online and print. Yeah. And the third one was print only. And it's all priced accordingly. Mm. But of course, what they actually want you to do is go for the online and print because print is where they make their money. But yeah. print only feels that you're not getting up to date information. Online only feels that you're not getting the actual hard copy delivered yeah, yeah, to your yeah, house. Yeah, like
0: Actually, thumb through it a bit.
1: So they're both decoys. Yeah. To force you into the print and online, so they actually get you where the most expensive subscription is, which is basically buying the hard copy every month.
0: Yeah, and the Economist de- did that to me, actually.
1: It's the same idea, yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah. that's but it's the it's the, it's 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 called the decoy effect, and that is behavioral economics at play, right? Because basically, what it does is it nudges us to make elemental shortcuts in our thinking in order for them to extract most money. I mean, the other great one is like in the supermarket here in, in the little village in Croatia, which is very much like a supermarket like in Ireland in the 1970s. And the reason you know that it's full of weights. Do you remember supermarkets when we were kids? There was always scales and weights. Yes. And there was always yeah. like a a pound's worth of ham and a this, that, yeah. the other, right? Or, or
0: you used to get your quarter of sweets, a quarter of bonbons.
1: Exactly, and it would be weighed. So the yeah. little woman in Tindalls in Monkstown, do you remember her? Yeah, she had I a do. big, she had a big weighing scales, and she'd have like these little weights, right? So it's, it's like as if you're going back to Mesopotamia, right? And in this, in this, uh, and then she's the ch- shop. T- she, ch- she chases out of the shop. <laughs> yeah, John and I were terrible. And this poor octogenarian woman in Monkstown. By the way, if you're from this neck of the woods around Duniry Monkstown, you might remember Tyndall's sweet shops with the weights and the bags of bonbons. But I digress, John. YouTube. So I'm going to go back to the shop here in Croatia, right? And what you notice is at your eye line, no matter what little aisle you're in, there's two little aisles, right? Yeah. And it sells everything, okay? Because it's only one shop and one island, so everyone has to shop there. But at your eye line, everything at your eye line is just slightly more expensive, right? right. Every brand is just like, I mean, Croats the don't, they're not big. It's a post-communist world, so they're not big on brands, right? But it's exactly the same thing because you buy what's closest to you at your eye line, And yep. that's what you notice in most shops, the really, really cheap beans and things are always on the bottom. That's so why I'm don't... always bending over <laughs> in supermarkets. Now that you've disappeared as a human being, now that you're actually doing <laughs> downward dog every morning, I suspect, <laughs> to keep that <laughs> I mean, lead You actually day.
0: bend over now.
1: <laughs> exactly. You can see things you haven't seen for years. Anyway. <laughs> now. No, no, move so, on, Mark. Move on. So, Please so move on this, quickly. So this is, this is, what behavioral economics is all about. It's about those little nudges, those mistakes. Like you, you might notice, again, you know my mother of old, right? My mother, yep. as you know, is in her 88th year this year. I know your mum was 90 last week, which is amazing. Yes. Great amazing. stuff, going yep. strong, Carmel. But my mum my loses her car keys, I would say, on a daily basis. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe not daily, but at least three or four times a week, right? My mother's lost her mind. <laughs> well, I, I know. <laughs> But she's still she's still knocking around though. Ah, yes, yeah, she is. Yeah. But so Alice would lose the car keys, and straight away there will be a prayer to Saint Anthony,
0: right? Yes. Saint Anthony, oh, yes. who
1: is who is the patron saint of lost causes. Yeah. And lo and behold, when the car keys are finally found sitting on top of the telly where they've been every single day for the last three hundred sixty-five <laughs> days of every single year on top yeah. of the telly, Granny then announces, right, that. It was the prayer that did the trick. Of course it was. And and this is, again, behavioral economics. This is all to do with the fact that we want to be able to think we're in control of our own environment. So we default to positions that we hope and we think give us control. So granny praying to the saint is an example of that. She will actually identify the prayer as the reason for her yeah. world makes sense, and it's it is fascinating. It's like it's like the time if you go to, for example, a foreign country. Let's say you go to Turkey, mm-hmm. and the last thing you really want to buy is a shisha pipe. as a general rule, right? Yes. It's not really the thing you want to take home, but you go to the bazaar in in Istanbul, and some says to you, "Would you like to buy a shisha pipe?" Uh, you say, "No, no, 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 no." And then he says, "Look, I'll sell it to you for fifty euros." Yeah. And you say, "No way." guy in the next stall who's working with the original guy says, don't worry, I'll sell you one for five euros. Now, the original guy has anchored your expectations about price at 50. The guy he's working with, but you think he's working against, has anchored, has has actually given you a price of five euros. You end up spending five euros in the shisha pipe when in actual fact, it costs them a euro to buy from the wholesaler. But the anchoring effect is the key thing. And you walk away thinking you've just got an amazing bargain. bargain. And then you've got a bloody shisha pipe sitting in the corner that you don't know what to do with.
0: I have a few ideas, but anyway.
1: (laughs) So let's go on. So this is what I want to talk about today is we've got these heuristics, these sort of shortcuts we use, right? When we're going to buy things or making decisions, right? If a company has loads and loads of data about you, they will get to know you. The, the rule of thumb is that different people nudge in different ways, right? So the more information a company knows about you, the more likely it is to get you to behave in a certain way. So for example, Spotify decided that in the last week, I've been listening to r b So they actually nudge this playlist toward me. I then feel, oh my God, they're listening to me. This is all personalized mm. stuff. And very soon they're probably going to try and sell me a premium episode or this episode or that episode. And they're kind of upselling you. But they're upselling you because the hard yards has already been done because you now think that they're a mate. You now think that they're your friend. You now think- They care about you. you. Yeah, they care about you. And then of course, they figure out what sort of person are you? Are you a likable person? Are you a risk averse person? So for example, when advertisers are advertising to risk averse people, What they do is they tell people, 95% of mothers are using this detergent. So the mother who's really worried, for example, about what sort of products are in detergents Mm -hmm. for their kids are satisfied and in some way reassured that 95% of other mothers are doing this. That's the Colgate ad sort of approach, you know, 95% toothpaste, la, 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 la. And once an advertiser has information about you, then suddenly, and a whole new Approach to marketing and economics develops, which is what they call personalized selling. So basically, you give the data willingly, they then crunch the numbers, find out what type of person you are, realize that you're this type of person, and then suddenly. Back to your, you know, the idea that Peter Antonioni was talking about. Do you remember that? That you have a personal connection exactly. with a brand which is unbelievably remote. Because remember what Remember Peter was saying about Italian villages? He
0: talking, yeah, he was talking about the, the kind of the local coffee shop and the local kind of butchers and the local kind of fruit and veg shop that they service the, the local community and the local neighborhood. So they knew all the people. They knew all their customers personally. And they know that, you know, Giuseppe loves a little bit of uh, a nice slice of pork and, you know, so he gets that and it's kind of kept for him, all that kind of stuff. But they don't necessarily, as Peter was saying, they don't necessarily make huge amounts of, of money. It's only when you scale that. And that's when a lot of these supermarkets and, you know, Spotify and the Netflix of this world, they've taken that kind of local neighborhood model and scaled it.
1: Yeah, and they're kind of talking to me every night as if I'm a kind of a mate of theirs. Yes. As you would do, for example, when we used to go down to Golden Discs in the 1980s mm-hmm. and 90s, yes. sticking through album covers for yeah. years and years and years, simply because. and then they'd get to know you. And then suddenly, you know, they'd say, look, you know, that latest... You remember that craze when we were kids of buying Japanese import albums? Because it was because of the vinyl.
0: They always had really cool picture disc vinyl. That's that what it
1: was. Yeah. yeah and you'd yeah. write off to NME and get your Japanese import yeah. first edition. You come back with a,
0: with a pink record or, or something with a really with cool. kind of Japanese
1: writing on it? And you yeah, thought, yeah. I'm I'm the dogs. <laughs> anyway, so this is what I do find fascinating is this fusion now, John, between data, economics, advertising, and marketing. And the business plans of various large corporations and small corporations that realize if they can have some sort of connection with you, if they've got some sort of attachment to you, that you are much more likely to buy from them. And one thing that really always fascinated me about marketing and branding is the sweet spot of marketing and branding and consumer relations is not the expression, I like that, it's the expression, "I am like that." So it's the idea of you create tribes that you're that type of person, and that right, type of yeah. person buys that type of product, and that type of person is much more what they call in the jargon, sticky, much less likely to yeah. change their consumer behavior once they have you. And those well, commercial fa- yeah. is, is there
0: an element to this as well? is that if somebody's been really friendly and nice to you? you're less likely to be Like rude. I am to you. Yes, yes. <laughs> but you're less likely to be rude and cold to them. So you kind of accommodate them a bit more and you kind of listen to them a little bit more. Is that, is that a key factor in this nudge I, I, marketing I, th- bit?
1: I, I think it is. I, I, think, I think all of this is this bizarre notion of trying to create, I know it sounds weird in the commercial world, but empathy with the consumer, right? With the person who's buying. Yeah. Now, of course, for Irish people, I think this is always, because you know me, Irish people hate talking about money. Yes. I, I, yeah. I've, I've always loved this. It's a really nice trait that we have, right? Because how much of that costs you? Ah, look, don't, don't worry about it. It'll be grand. Yeah
0: I'll, yeah, co- yeah. I'll come
1: back to you with the price, right? When I was working in London years ago and I was working in, 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 in that big investment bank and it was largely with English investment bankers, really quite upper-class geezers, right? And we were doing deals And of course, at the very end of a negotiation, the Brits love to stay quiet, right? Because that makes everything awkward, right? And of course, me being the paddy would just keep talking during the middle of it. Gotta fill the gap. Gotta fill the gap. Yeah, yeah, fill the gap. And and, and my boss said to me, uh, and I was about 26 or 27, and he took me aside after one of my more particularly jittery outbursts in the middle of a negotiation, crucial negotiation. He said to David, in England, we negotiate in silence. <laughs> and I just, you're fired. I just said, all right, boss, whatever you say. But it's it's that idea that, you know, you do want to create empathy, but you're right about this notion of of somebody being friendly. But what fascinates me, John, is that right now we're talking about this sort of personalized business, personalized marketing, personalized selling, as if it's something new and as if it's a function of the data that has been revealed to us by our online footprint. Yeah. But if you go back to emerging markets, very poor countries, 20 or 30 years ago, there was a very interesting development called microbanking, which was also based entirely on knowing your customer, understanding what was happening. There was a guy called Mohammed Yunus and i think he won the nobel prize peace prize not economics peace prize okay in 2006 or 7 and he set up a bank called the grameen bank and the grameen bank was a bank in bangladesh which identified one enormous fallacy in investment which is that poor people tend to default less than rich people yet poor people Always face much higher costs of capital than rich people. So right. what you see, for example, and you saw that in Ireland in the 2008s, is the people who actually defaulted wholesale on their debts were really rich people, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Huge
1: yeah. debts, like billion dollars or hundred million dollars or whatever. Yours, what poor people actually got on and paid for. Most people in negative equity sort of continued to pay, and you see this all across the world that poor people are much less likely to default than rich people. Now, Muhammad Yunus took that and he said, okay, what is happening in my country, Bangladesh? We've been in an IMF program for ages. We've been in a World Bank program, and yet development isn't happening. It's not happening in India. It's not happening Mm. in Bangladesh. What's happening? And what he understood was that very, very small loans targeted at very, very poor people will tend to get paid back and will tend to be used much more expeditiously than large IMF loans to big companies. You know, it's interesting because
0: I I actually saw this in action myself in India when I was in India back in, I don't know, 94? Was it 93, 94? But in small villages, what they were doing was one woman would use the whole rest of the village as collateral to buy a goat or a chicken, yep. or whatever. And then somebody else in the village would do the same. So they'd end up with a goat, they'd milk the goat They'd keep some of the milk, and they'd sell the rest of it. And then eventually they'd use it for mutton or whatever. But the, the bit that they sold, that was used to pay back their, their loan. And everybody in the village was doing this. So somebody else would have chickens and they'd be selling eggs. So it was just this little micro-economy that was supported by the kind of cooperative society. And it just meant that, you know, their collateral was the whole village for one chicken type of thing. And it, it just worked brilliantly.
1: And no, it was just a little
0: incremental...
1: Well, John, just picking up on what you're saying about India, right? There is a fantastic economist from Peru called Hernando de Sota. And he has been writing for many, many years about why poor countries remain poor. And there has been this extraordinary shorthand, particularly in the 90s, that what was wrong with poor countries was they didn't have enough entrepreneurial talent, right? Okay, yeah. this is the whole idea, right? Now, anybody who's visited a poor country will realize that poor people are the most entrepreneurial people in the world because they have to be. They're always hustling, they're always buying and selling. They're always trading because they've nothing else to fall back on. They have no social capital. They have no collateral, right? And De Sota understood that one of the problems with very, very poor countries is the collateral that poor people have is not accepted by the banking system as credit. So for example, if you're living in a shanty town, your collateral may well be a TV set or a cooker or something as basic as that. Now that's, that's your wealth. That's not accepted by banks as collateral because banks are only interested in doing big loans and big tickets. Coming back to your Indian experience and the DeSoto's experience, and then Eunice's implementation of DeSoto's ideas was that, how do we actually end up, or can we get to a situation where we're lending, let's say, $50 a year to a small company, not more, not less, okay? And and, and basically, what what Eunice figured out, right, was that small-scale farmers make up the majority of a country's population but large-scale developers and bankers have no interest in lending to them. So he said, okay, what are we going to do? And what he did was exactly as you said, he said that every borrower in these small villages had to be a member of a five-person borrower group. So the groups share responsibility for repayments and defaults. That's So it, once yeah. you share responsibility for payments and defaults, right, suddenly things like shame, things like not pulling your weight, things like social ostracization, they all become part of why people don't default, right? And a fantastic quote was that also neighbors can hear and see early warning signs if another neighbor might be in difficulty. There was a great quote by a guy called Borstein who said, villagers can smell what their neighbors are cooking for dinner. And what he was saying then is, is that basically, if your neighbor is cooking meat in a very poor village, you have a fairly good idea that they're well off, right? That they're doing well, they're getting money. But if your, your neighbors start cooking just rice and nothing else, right? You know they're in financial trouble. And all these sort of social signals were given out in these five-part borrower groups. And the upshot was that this was the data that people had been always missing And this data went incredibly far to making sure that defaults in the Grameen Bank and in micro-lending became almost, almost unheard of, which is an extraordinary thing. And he won the Nobel Peace Prize, not for economics, but for peace. Because the one thing we know is that if you can raise even one family out of poverty. You are doing more for global peace and more for the globe than any number of IMF deals so, yeah, I mean, it, it was really
0: interesting you explaining that, the, the ins and outs of that. It's really interesting seeing that firsthand in India. But what did that actually do to the broader, the national banking system? Because they were kind of being left behind because a lot of these guys were dealing with small cooperatives and, and yeah, co-op I mean, banks.
1: What it meant was that the large banks... And that was the case in Ireland many, many years ago. I mean, again, younger listeners will find this hard to understand that people went into banks with a certain amount of trepidation when oh, you went yeah. to a bank manager. Like you'd put on a suit and you'd go in and meet this who was actually giving your own money back. That's the crazy thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what basically happened in many, many poor countries is that those people who would have ended up using the mainstream banks never used them. They got reasonably well off. They became reasonably wealthier and wealthier. When I say wealthier, it became a little bit more prosperous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not wealthy, yeah. a little bit more prosperous. And what they did was they remembered Eunice and the micro lenders, and they never, ever went to the mainstream banks. So the mainstream banks lost out profoundly by not focusing on the concerns of the small individuals, the small farmers. And what we're going to see Is the same sort of dynamic, I suspect, in lots of other industries right now. So, for example, let's go back to my Spotify, right? Yeah. Spotify give me the love. I am sufficiently gullible and stupid and dumb to think, (laughs) as we know this, (laughs) to think that they love me, right? They're concerned about me. do, Mac. I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. And therefore, the next time I'm going to renew my Spotify, they don't even have to give me a decoy strategy. I'll just buy the premium thing, right? Okay. So Whatever's going, here's uh, the cash. Just give it, give me the love. I love you. You love me, la la la, right? Okay. So therefore, they've got into my head. And I think that what you're going to find now with data, with the proliferation of data, is that we are going to expect that type of treatment, that sort of personalized treatment from almost every company that we deal with. Yes, And therefore, the companies that don't use this personalized treatment, that don't personalize products, that don't try and speak to their customer, as you were saying, the Italian cappuccino makers spoke to Giovanni and Giuseppe yes. and yeah, all that yeah. stuff, right? But the companies that don't do that will, like the big banks in the emerging markets, also get left behind. So data is kind of king. It's out there. It can be used, it can be manipulated. We know that we can be manipulated, but ultimately that's the way commerce is going.
0: This episode of the Dave McWilliams podcast was brought to you by Liberty Insurance.
1: I hope you enjoyed that episode. And of course, it's focusing on what Liberty is actually trying to do, which is using data to personalize insurance. Because the last thing you want to do is buy a package when you know your own idiosyncrasies, you know your own market, you know exactly maybe how you drive, how you don't drive, et cetera. So, personalised insurance, and it looks like personalised products, are the way to go, John.
0: Absolutely. Not only that, but if you buy online, I believe you can save up to €300. But
1: you can spend on all sorts of other goodies. So, (laughs) have a gander. Get a quote at libertyinsurance.ie or search Liberty Car Insurance.